When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Tortoise. Hello, I'm Basha Cummings. James Harding is away, so I'm in the editor's chair for this episode. It's Monday the 18th of September. There is a lot to get through, so let's dive in. From Tortoise, welcome to the news meeting. The sea ice surrounding Antarctica is well below any previous recorded winter level, and it's a worrying new benchmark for a region that once seemed resistant to global warming. 7,000 migrants crossing the Mediterranean in just three days. I said it at the beginning, what is happening in Lampedusa is the death of Europe. And this trust has defended her mini-budget. I didn't just try to fatten the pig on market day, I tried to rear the pig, fatten the pig and slaughter the pig. I'm joined by Tortoise editors Giles Wattel. Hello, Giles. Hello. And Jeevan Varsaga. Hey, Brad. And by Coco Khan, who is the co-host of the politics podcast Pod Save the UK and a journalist at The Guardian. Hi, Coco. Morning, Basha. How are you doing? Good, thanks. Thanks for joining us. So you've each got a story that you think should lead the news. Um, we're going to discuss each one. And at the end, I'm going to decide the running order. So we'll start with long stories short. Um, in a single sentence, what do you want to talk about? Let's start with you, Giles. Brand news, how four women and a four-year investigation are trying to hold a so-called comedian to account. Right. The big story of the weekend. Brilliant. Coco. What's your long story short? So mine is uh, not the only bully, the sad and preventable story of the bully XL and its victims. Yes, OK, the dogs. And Jeevan? <laughs> Basha, my headline is the anger after the floods. Right. I'm guessing we're going to Libya for that story. Um, so, Giles, why don't we start with you, uh, Russell Brand? So for anybody who's not been in the UK or has been in the UK under a rock... This is about a consistently, remarkably unfunny former comedian who was all over, called Russell Brand, who was all over British TV, um, in particular between 2006 and 2013. And that is the period covered by a series of allegations in a Dispatches documentary on Channel 4 and fleshed out in the Sunday Times and in the papers this morning. These are based on the participation of four women in particular, though more have come forward this morning. They include one allegation of rape, another of grooming and sexual assault by a woman who was 16 at the time, and at that time Brand was 31, and two more uh, personal accounts of alleged sexual assault by former colleagues of Russell Brand. I should say he denies all the allegations. In fact, I will read a little bit from a somewhat eccentric denial that he's issued in the form of a video uh, to his followers online. He says he has received uh, letters which include, quote, a litany of extremely egregious and aggressive attacks. He says that 
amidst this litany of astonishing, and I continue to quote, rather baroque attacks, are some very serious allegations that I absolutely refute. He says, quote, the relationships I had were absolutely always consensual. I was always transparent about them, almost too transparent. As those will know, he has been brutally candid, in a sense, about his promiscuity, which he has called a sex addiction, and he's had therapy for sex addiction, both in his stand-up, in which, for example, he... I don't know if we can need to get into too much detail, but he's talked in graphic terms in his stand-up uh, about precisely the kind of sexual assault which is then detailed in, some, in, in the investigation. And also in, in his uh, autobiography, which now extends to two volumes, um, he's written in one case, uh, and I paraphrase, I'm being so open about my sex life here, just imagine uh, what I'm not being open about. Um, I think a third set of questions come under the why now uh, heading. Uh, and the answers include, it takes a very long time to bring this kind of investigation to fruition. But I think also um, there's fear and fury on the part of the women who have come forward so far, all, by the way, identified only uh, so far under pseudonyms in the coverage, fear that they would be frozen out of an intensely competitive industry that coddles its talent, mm. e even if not accused of the kinds of things that, that Brand has been accused of, uh, and, and fury or at least indignation that now, aged 48, he should have been able to embark on a new career as a self-appointed online guru who peddles in co political conspiracies, but also in wellness treatments and therapies. I, I guess we should also ask why however many years it is after the start of the Me Too movement, it's taken this long to reach British so-called comedy. Well, that definitely seemed to be something that came out of the dispatches, is that this was a well-known open secret within the comedy scene to the point where women were warning each other to steer away from him. The two, two things that you touch on in your pitch, Giles, that really struck me, one is the question of transparency, the other is the sense that even in that phrase, in plain sight, it feels like we, we know that phrase because we've heard it in relation to Jimmy Savile, which was the previous scandal that rocked broadcasting and the sense that a man didn't necessarily even pr have to try that hard to pretend he was something other than he was. Um, so just to touch on transparency first, when I watched the dispatches and I saw how carefully the investigation journalist had sort of trawled through his radio appearances, his book, the sense that he had this curated openness, that he was praised for being open about his sex addiction and his drug addictions. And yet he himself was sort of saying quite openly, imagine what I'm leaving out. Do you think that we're kind of duped by that openness, that, that very carefully constructed openness? And that means that we don't ask the more serious questions about what might be going on behind the scenes. I, I'm sure with hindsight we're going to come to that sort of conclusion. Let's let's remember the context, which is uh, stand-up comedy, where he was originally trying to that he was originally trying to break into and which he then dominated. Um, there is immense pressure, let's remember, to be edgy in some way. Uh, 
when, for whatever reason, an artist succeeds and becomes bankable, they're going to be protected. Uh, and, and, and so he, he delivered a product that went very, very close to a line. It, it seems now that he went over it. But I think your point about the difference between curated transparency uh, and, and, and authentic openness is well taken and we're only beginning to see which is which. Coco, what what do you make of the story and do you have a sense of why why do you think this story came out now? For me, making sure that the institutions that failed are in the spotlight is crucial because the last thing you want is for this story to get into a public he said, she said, it was a different time or we didn't know that then or or, that's what you thought you were supposed to do. That is all just noise. Whereas actually, fundamentally, as this investigation showed you, there were a number of people all along the way that could see this man is sus. This man is sus. They were even considering at one point not having any women work on his team, which seems like a sort of gross violation of of any equal uh, rights policies at work, you know, so, and, and they fail. They fail to hold this person to account. Mm. Jeevan, what, what do you make of this story? I think if you subtract uh, the celebrity element, there are, there are two things I'm left thinking about. One of them is the sort of social point, which is the resilience of um, sexism and misogyny and the way that it reinvented itself in the 90s and the early noughties um, in the form of humour and sort of the, the title of Shagger of the Year, uh, and so on, and it just shows us how kind of enduring that is, and how much, um, how much I think we need to kind of think about how it how it comes back. Um, but the other thing, the other point, and the point that I think is the core of the story for me, really, is the industry point, and that's um, and, and it reminds me of the investigation that our colleague Paul Caruana Galizia did into Crispin Odie earlier this year, where he talks about a dominant personality within an abusive workplace, an abusive um, industry. Um, and again, we've sort of see we see that in the allegations that are made about Russell Brand or, or some of the things that are sort of public about him, the harassment of the newsreader and the point that Coco made again about um, Channel 4 suggesting that there should only be men working on his show. Um, and that really is the sort of core of the story for me, the institutional failure that allowed this to, to continue. You're right. I mean, it seems like a sort of management of a problem rather than a confrontation of a problem, um, which gets to the heart of how we think about talent and the power dynamics within not just comedy, but TV as well. Um, I'm sure we could talk about so much more to do this investigation, but I think we should move on. So, Coco, do you want to talk about scary dogs? For anyone who um, hasn't been following this story closely, uh, a type of dog known as the American Bully XL, large dog, there's plenty of them around. I think their numbers were around the kind of low thousands. But the uh, instances in which this dog was involved with a fatal attack on another person or on livestock or on other animals was, was significantly higher than other types of dogs. Um, It all came to a head quite recently when a social media video was circulated of one of these dogs on a rampage in Birmingham. I just have to say, at the time, I just didn't have the the broadband capacity to watch the video. So I just saw the stills online and then read the West Midlands police account that said three people have been bitten. That sounds very uh, bad, but also not too bad. And then you watch the video and it is full horror movie. This is full like people being pursued on the streets by a very large, scary horror movie dog. And, you know, you really got the sense of the the fear that these creatures, when left to their own devices, could 
provoke in their communities. The video goes viral. Our Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, uh, responds to it and says, we're going to look into it. And then over the course of last week, there was all this conversation about whether the dog would be added to the Dangerous Dogs Act 1991. It would be the latest dog to be added. added to it since the act was created in 1991 the main thing about this act is that it it, it enables the legal destruction of these dogs which means them being put down Um, and there was all this conversation about whether it would be added and then towards the end of last week it was added you might think case closed also there was a follow-up story saying that there would be some sort of amnesty so actually the the dogs that were well behaved of this type would actually probably be spared so you might think Case closed, that's done. Why are we still talking about it when there's so many bigger things to talk about? But for me, I found it an absolutely fascinating political story. Um, Something that I'm just personally very invigorated is that by is that intersection of the personal and the political. We're a nation of pet lovers. Now we see, you know, animals in pubs, in parks, in offices. And I think it kind of sort of said to me, wow, this government has nothing in its artillery you know it's 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 a reactive form of politics based on what it can get away with because it's in the public eye we don't have proper joined up thinking about things like wildlife you know dogs and cats you know I'm a cat lover myself they're thinking of bringing in a a ban on cats in New Zealand because of how they affect the bird life you know we need genuinely some thought and so protecting our public spaces and protecting our rights to compromise collectively against a kind of growing individualism in which this is my animal this is my pet this is my individual choice very few people need a dog by the way I think that is a role for a a government or or certainly an institution to intervene and say how do we protect our, our spaces this story then therefore is for me reveals the failing of that it reveals the fact that like the government isn't thinking in this way um has no desires to this isn't this is you know jack liss the poor 10 year old boy who was mauled to death by an american bully xl called beast you know his parents have been campaigning tirelessly on this issue but it was only because there was that one video that circulated that it got a response i think that is telling us something about our government about how it you know, they, they always use the phrase, don't they, zombie government. But it, you really do sort of see that with this story. Mm. And actually, if it can cut to the heart of communities so strongly, as in our pets, how we love our pets, our community, our parks, these are really sacred things. And they're letting us down over and over again. And what, what Coco, do you think would have been good politics in this scenario? I don't think it would be harmful to look around at our European neighbours and ask what they're doing. So, you know... As part of this amnesty that they were announcing uh, at the end of last week, they said, "Okay, well, these uh, you know owners of American Bully XLs won't necessarily have to put the dogs down if they can muzzle them, if they can, you know, mandatory leashing. I think there was talk about some mandatory insurances as well. Those policies already exist." In, uh, for example, Spain. In Spain, they classify a potentially dangerous dog by its size, by its uh, jaw, by its like athleticism. And if you have one of these dogs, you know, just that standard, it's muzzle and it's a leash. So they're sort of preventing attacks from happening. In the Netherlands, they were talking about at one point maybe having mandatory courses for owners of dangerous dogs so that they know how to handle them. Again, thinking about Spain, you know, you have to prove that you are fit physically capable of taking one of these dogs down if you have to so there's 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 additional loopholes in that would prevent it getting to this place Stephen, before we started recording you said something interesting about what this ban says about sunak and the government and sunakism and to um 
steal a joke from our producer that this felt like a bit of a dog whistle to um, a certain kind of Tory voter. Just t- tell me again what what you what you think this symbolises about the way that the government is operating. Well, part of me does wonder whether this is class related and the kind of person who might own uh, an American bully XL um, is perhaps not the kind of person who is assumed to be a Tory voter. So perhaps the, the coded message here might be that this isn't um, uh, dealing with dangerous dogs, it's dealing with dangerous chavs. Um, I wonder about um, this story because it does um, it does make me think a bit about our relationship with animals, as, as Coco has talked about. And I think there are uh, there are a lot of things to talk about here. Uh, I mean, I'm a dog owner myself. I think a number of people on this call may be, may be dog owners. A number of people in this conversation may be dog owners. Um, and we tend to be very indulgent of our animals. And I think it's kind of worth thinking about um, dogs' impact on society and dogs' impact on the environment. Um, and, and Coco raises, I think, important questions about that. Mm. Well, thanks, Coco. We're going to take a minute and then we're going to hear what Jeevan thinks should lead the news. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Jeevan, what have you got for us this week? So as you guessed from my headline, I want to talk about the um, really shocking and distressing events in Libya, in uh, the city of Derna in eastern Libya. Now, this happened um, a week ago. It happened on September the 11th. But the reason that I I want to talk about it now is because I think there there are substantial questions about how the Libyan government or governments acted or failed to act in this case. And they tell us a lot about what's going to happen in the world in the next few years as the impacts of climate-related disasters intersect with these weak or non-existent states. But before I do that, before I make that pitch, I just want to talk for a moment about the human cost of what um, we see unfolding over the last week. Um, and, and in particular, touch on a, a really powerful story that was in the Washington Post uh, in the last few days about a wedding party um, at a place called Susa, which is about 60 miles west of Derna. Uh, now, the reporter and photographer from the Post who went there um, saw handprints on the walls, muddy handprints going up the stairs, which basically told them a story about how the guests had tried to scramble up to the to the upper floor of the house to escape from the flood. Um, 
And this story has a, a, a miraculous twist because everybody in that house survived. Um, so what happened is they got to the upper floor. The men held the children up above their shoulders to, to reach reach the air. And then the kitchen wall suddenly collapsed and let all the water out into the yard. Um, and that, that saved them. But of course, thousands have died. Um, uh, around 11,000 people have been killed by these floods. Uh, about 10,000 people are still, still unaccounted for. Um, and in the case of Libya... This isn't just a natural disaster. This isn't just a climate disaster. There was a plan to repair the dams that failed, a plan to build a third dam between the two dams that appeared to have gone down. Um, And that didn't happen. That work doesn't appear to have happened. And it's also the case, critically, that the authorities failed to evacuate people. So that the mayor of Dena ordered an evacuation. Uh, and then the general, uh, Khalifa Haftar, who's in charge of that part of Libya, appears to have countermanded this and told people it was safe to stay in their homes. It's, it's really not clear why that happened. Um, so there's a significant, really, really significant human cost of the political failure of Libya. So I think the, the point uh, of the pitch, the point of making this pitch now is th- this is a reminder that uh, many of the countries that are, that are most vulnerable to climate change disasters are also those with, with very weak or with non-existent states where there aren't early warning systems, where infrastructure isn't getting repaired and where the government either has a limited ability to step in and help or, or is actively counterproductive. Some of the questions I'd like to know the answers to now in Libya is whether this kind of public anger is going to lead to a change of government is going to lead to international pressure to find a solution to Libya's political crisis uh, and whether there's going to be any accountability for the failures that have cost so many lives. Thanks, Jiva. I mean, the thing that over over the last few days, as, as more and more has come out about the situation in Derna and the surrounding areas, because it did take a while for, for reporters to get in, for information to get out, what struck me is that this was a place that we have largely forgotten, um, that we don't pay much attention to anymore, despite the fact that the civil war is incredibly recent and the situation there has been fragile for a long time. I mean, it's it's a basic question, but you, know, you think of Morocco, you think of the earthquake in hitting parts of Syria. What internationally can be done? What do you think, given that we know that these kinds of climate catastrophes are going to become more regular, they're going to be hitting across the world more regularly? Um, what, how do we prepare? Um, it's, a, it's a really good question and one that's really hard to answer. I think... At a kind of basic level, in terms of getting help, getting aid to the people who need it, I think one of the answers to this is engaging with local, local communities, engaging with local authorities, often rather than engaging with national governments, who, who are often absent or or sometimes actively malevolent. Um, and I think there's also a kind of broader question, really, about how wealthy Western governments interact with, um, with governments in these kinds of states. Um, uh, the general General Haftar, who's in charge of this part of Libya, was um, appears to be recruited by the CIA in in the hope that he would help to overthrow Gaddafi. Um, he's now um, in league with the Wagner Group, so he's paying Wagner mercenaries to protect oil fields in that part of Libya. So, so the, the complicated sort of geopolitics, the sort of fault lines of the world, can run through Libya. Um, and I think there's a question about whether countries that have the power to to potentially change things, can use that influence um, to bring to bring these to bring these states to account. Giles, you've reported on lots of world affairs issues over the last oh gosh, I don't know how many years, twin decades. decades. No, no. <laughs> let's say the last few years. Um, and um, I'm curious how 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 what's happened in Libya fits into your kind of 
broader schema of catastrophes and what they tell us about how the world works? I find you mentioned Morocco, and I I find that uh, earthquakes, uh, um, of which I've covered some and been some, um, are horrendous and often bring even bigger uh, cost in life than than even these floods in Derna. Um, but they're very difficult to fit into a broader pattern because they're just not. They, well, they are in a broader pattern, but it's over a geological time scale. Um, What's interesting to me about the meta story here is because I, I'm a bit of a climate nerd, as Jeevan knows. I'm an amateur. Jeevan's a pro. But um, is how confidently and how routinely we attribute, we do the climate attribution part of this story. Because there will be people who resist that aspect of it. And, and these are not just um, fringe deniers. These are people in policy-making positions in the States, for example, more so if political winds go the way they might in the States. And they, they, will, they will attribute this disaster entirely to engineering deficiencies. But it's just a very simple physics point that I would like to make, which should embolden journalists to attribute very confidently and routinely to climate. And that is... <clears throat> forgive me, the clausius clapeyron effect. That is basic physics, which says that for every degree increase in sea surface temperatures, you can expect the air above it to hold 7% more moisture. And I did a calculation on this for something I wrote a long time ago about snow, which is that the, the recorded temperature increase that has been observed already, we, we, we know that there, on, in an average year, there'll be 15 cubic kilometers, cubic kilometers of water more in the atmosphere than um, before the uptick in global warming post-Second World War. That's an awful lot of water. We are going to see it come down. I used to live just along the coast from, from Libya in Algeria, and uh, heavy rains at this time of year are extremely unusual. But of course, we've seen them not just in Libya, but all around the Med, and that is part of a big, long trend. And I'm just, I'm just saying, as journalists, um, who might have been timid about climate attribution in the past, we shouldn't be. What's also terrifying about what you just said is that, of course, last night, one of the things that was leading the news here in the UK was the remarkably low levels of Antarctic sea ice, which means that that part of the world will act more as a giant radiator rather than as a giant refrigerator, which will only raise sea temperatures, which, by your clapperon effect, will therefore put more moisture into the atmosphere so we can expect to see more instances like Libya, like in China this summer. Coco, did you follow the story as it was sort of slowly coming out over the last week or so? I, I, I haven't been following it. And actually, that's something that I, I've been recently trying to reckon with my kind of jingoistic news consumption and how I tend to be more animated and interested in kind of nationwide UK stories. But as Jeevan and, and Giles have brilliantly articulated the the world is a different place and actually what happens there is a direct uh, if not consequence of some of the things that we've participated in is definitely going to be a direct have a direct impact on our lives and that even that way that I think about like I don't know this is silly now but you know the foreign office the home office like it's quite it's quite retro really when you think about it and so hearing you guys talk there I thought to myself actually this Libya story 
is a, a very, very big, big story. And it's quite easy to get swallowed up in this kind of larger doom cycle of just terrible things happening to people that don't look like us in different places. But all of it is like, you know, chickens coming home to roost slowly but surely and is therefore totally worth every single column inch it gets, if mm. not more. And actually, that brings me to an email that we got from uh, one of our listeners um, called Linda Thompson. It's really for Jeevan. And let me just read you a little bit of it, Jeevan, because it's sort of a question for you or a comment for you. Last Monday's episode, Jeevan said that as climate editor, he pitches different flavours of the apocalypse each week, which I think... It's probably true. Um, Then I saw that volcanologist Bill Maguire posted on Twitter that he is expecting effective societal collapse by the mid-century and planning for his family accordingly. Um, His post really highlights what your podcast has said before about the human and behavioural side being the best way to get the climate change story across. I'm curious what you think of that, Jeevan. I mean, I think I really understand why people feel despair in the face of um, uh, these sort of big, dreadful events that we seem to we can't seem to have any influence over. Um, I feel sort of that that's probably an incredibly unhelpful reaction, though, and retreating from the world is really unhelpful at this moment. And I think I think there are lots of things that you can do as a citizen if you feel engaged by this story. Uh, and one of them, um, as Coco says, is to engage locally and to think about what you can do in your community to make your community more sustainable, greener, uh, reduce its its carbon footprint. Um, but actually, just the biggest thing that you can do as a citizen is to vote. Um, so, you know, my I think my view of this um, as an individual is to say that you don't respond by despairing, you respond by getting angry and getting engaged. That's a good call to arms to bring us to an end of this podcast. Before I do my sort of summary and decide uh, what I think should lead, let's go around and hear what you all think. And of course, you cannot choose your own story just in case, Coco, you were tempted to make another (laughs) pitch for dogs. Um, Giles, let's start with you. What do you think should lead this week? I do think the dog story is a very good, very interesting story for all the reasons Coco said. A brief word in defence of the government. Deaths from dog attacks in the UK in 2022 rose to 10 from a previous average of three. And bearing in mind the video that Coco described, it's not as if the government could do nothing and it's not as if the right response was on a local level. It had to be national because you can't have a ban on a certain type of dog in Birmingham and not in Bristol. That's just a brief word in defence of the government, which I guess would say that it was being responsive rather than reactive. However, I would go with the Derner story because of the sheer scale of the suffering and the very direct link to climate change. Coco, what do you think should lead... I, I'm I'm inclined to agree that it it should be uh, Libya. Actually, just as we were talking, I just received a push notification saying that London's heading for 45 degree days. You know, not not now, uh, but now? in the future. No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and just just it, it really just sort of hit home. We're having this conversation, and actually, like you know, you know that phrase I used earlier about the chickens coming home to roost like all of it is is connected and, and it should be there in some respects like it's difficult when you talk about climate because it does kind of trump everything in in many ways as you know they always say like there's no point arguing about sports when there will be no sports because we'll all be dead so, you know it is one Do of those things that that? I, oh yeah oh god all the time you always see it when that you know they have that uh that, that moment where Just Stop Oil will like ruin some sort of sporting event and then there'll be a chat oh, after. Yes. And then that seems to always be the sort of final point being like, well, 
it's good to be able to argue about sports now because we'll soon all be dead. <laughs> but yeah, no, and, but actually that, that, is, that is the fact. That is the truth of the matter. And what's happened in Libya is, of course, a story about like governmental failure and about kind of instability in the region. Yes, all of those things are true, but it's also a climate story and it's a story that we're going to see many chapters of unless we, unless we do something about it. And Jeevan, what, what do you think? I'm I'm really compelled um, by the dog story, actually, because I think it's a really important um, cultural story. Um, and what I what I really want is to listen to a podcast which talks about how dogs have become central to our society, but is is reported from the perspective of people who don't like dogs <laughs> and what what that means for them. Well, but, um, I think Coco but, but might think be able that... to listen. I don't... Provides. I, like being, I don't hate dogs, but I do see. I do think that dogs have a place, and I don't think they should have a seat at the pub. I think seats are in short supply at the pub, and I think they should be on the floor. There we go. I said it. There we go. Make that podcast, Hoko. <laughs> I really want to hear it. But I do think the story that leads the news is Russell Brand, and I think that's because of what it tells us about um, about power and um, power relations at work, which I think is a really, really important conversation that we're having in, in different ways. It's seems almost every week okay thank you um i'm actually really torn this week for reasons that i'll explain um i think coco i found i found your pitch really compelling and i think you're exactly right that this is a story about the way that politics interacts with individual daily life and decisions that you make about your life. I read this really brilliant profile of Rishi Sunak in the FT over the weekend by George Parker and um, Lucy Fisher, which was sort of a big question about what is Sunakism? What is it that he's actually, what, what, what is he selling to the country? And one of their conclusions was that he's a short-term problem solver. He's not a kind of long-term visionary. And I think you can fit this story into that frame really neatly that he's made a decision as Giles says he had to react um, and it's a it's a short-term solution we're not even sure exactly how it will be implemented but it answers a, an immediate political question what it does I think on a larger level is show that as you say this is a government that doesn't quite know what its long-term plan is and what its sell is um, and I think for that reason it's an important story but perhaps not an not a surprising one. So I would put that in third position. And then I'm really torn between Russell Brand and the uh, catastrophe in Derna. And I think the decision that I'll make is based on a kind of bigger thought about the news, (laughs) which is that, of course, there's an element of personal taste in every editor's decision making. The Russell Brand story is incredibly interesting. I also think it's important. But it feels like it reveals things that we already know about the way that broadcasting works, talent management works, misogyny, sexism. And although I think it's an incredibly important story, I'm not sure that it trumps upwards of 20,000 deaths in a single event in Libya. And I think, Jeevan, the way that you framed it as a bellwether for what is to come around the world, that, that climate catastrophes and climate change is only going to exacerbate and and reveal existing weaknesses in states around the world um, rather than in any ways help them. I think that's the right way to think about this story. So for that reason, I think that the deaths on a biblical proportion in Libya should lead the news um, 
not least because it's a place that we've largely forgotten about. I think Russell Brand, although an incredibly interesting and important story, uh, comes second and, and dogs in third place. Thank you all. Thank you, Jeevan. Thank you, Giles. And thank you, Coco. You can hear much more from Coco and her co-host, comedian Nish Kumar, on their podcast, Pod Save the UK, every week. Coco, just give us a quick taste of what people can expect to hear on Pod Save the UK. So the aim of the podcast is to be a hopeful, humorous place for progressive politics. Sometimes when you're interested in progressive politics and something we try to do is be very transparent, we are not Tories, we, we will not ever be voting for them and any of that side if you will but I think sometimes being on this side of the the camp can be strangely quite a hopeless place you know the the issues you tend to care about tend to get sidelined all the time (coughs) dogs and you um and you can find yourself sort of it can be quite a despairing place but actually the nature of progressive politics is that there is always the possibility for change that there is always a possibility for making things better and if only we just lean more in get deeper in we can find a solution. And so that's kind of the spirit that we've gone into this with. We also wanted to be a little bit different and just put our hands up and say, look, you know, I'm a journalist, but I didn't do lobby. Nish is a comedian. You know, we are not cut from the Westminster cloth. So if you ever had that frustration where you listen to political podcasts and thought, oh, you all know each other, don't you? Don't worry, we don't have any political friends and I'm not sure (laughs) we ever will. So if that's the sort of thing you want for your podcast, then then hopefully you'll find some solutions, some joy, some righteous outrage, um, but people that are a little bit closer to you in a podcasting space. And presumably some pro-cat content. (laughs) (laughs) There will be lots, yes. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining us, Coco. It was really great to have you. Um, If you are listening and, like Linda, you want to email us and tell us what you think we've missed or if you want to argue with the running order, you can email us, newsmeeting at tortoisemedia.com. We'd really love to hear from you and we do try and incorporate as much of your feedback as we can. We're going to leave you with Alice, who appeared in the Channel 4 Dispatches documentary on Russell Brand. She's one of the four women who came forward and explained why she thought it was important for her to speak up. I think he was very skillful in the start from making his identity be, I'm the womanizer, I'm a sex addict, I'm inappropriate, but it's all just a joke, it's funny. It's, you know, it's a smokescreen for a lot more of his dark behavior. He can keep pushing and being more and more extreme and nobody questions it because it just is well that's who he is that's what he does that's just russell tortoise hey it's danny pellegrino from everything iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. 